Greetings, programs, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. In this episode, I talk with Tron Scene Coordinator John Grower, who details how he and others made the effects pipeline that brought us so many of our favorite scenes in Tron, such as the light cycles and the MCP. John regales us with stories of good times and hard work at Disney. He recalls long nights, dark gunfights, and playing asteroids with Jeff Bridges and even Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame, all from his office at Mickey Mouse Avenue and Dopey Drive. And there was that time he got disinvited from Disney's art department by, well, by art. John shares how the story of Tron prefigured the internet today and that Tron lit a fire under him to create better graphics and animation software for future films. From Robert Abel and Associates, through Disney and on to Wavefront and Santa Barbara Studios, enjoy this ride-along with John on Tron and the many films and computer graphics breakthroughs of which he was a part. Welcome to the I.O. Tower. Greetings, John, and thank you for talking with me today about Tron. Richard was telling me you were a scene coordinator for Tron. And I didn't really know what that was exactly or how many scene coordinators there were, but could you talk a little bit about what that was? I didn't know what a scene coordinator was either uh, <laughs> when Richard asked me to work on the movie. <laughs> wow. uh, it was kind of a made-up title. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I mean, Richard and I had come from a company called Robert Abel and Associates, and he had left Abel's and went to uh, I, um, mm-hmm. which was one of the computer graphics companies back then. And I had stayed at Abel's and... and at Abel's, we were called uh, either technical directors or art directors, doing the same kind of thing that Tron was. Like, we were kind of versed in all this stuff, this backlight stuff, and compositing and recompositing and all that. So when I came to Disney and uh, they said, okay, um, actually, I, I had left Abel's. I had done a, a project, uh, co-directed a project for Michael Jackson, his first big music video called Can You Feel It? It was before MTV or anything, but we worked for about nine months, seven days a week for nine months, 18 hour days. And by the end of that, I just wanted to just, you know, get away. And I went to Hawaii and uh, I stayed in Hawaii till I ran out of money. And when I came back to LA, uh, there was a note from Richard saying, come over to Disney. I have a job for you if you want it. And so it was actually the last day of shooting of principal photography. Uh, I want to say that it was uh, the beginning of summer 81. Um, And so I actually arrived like uh, the last day of shooting. And I'm actually in the the crew photo for the live action crew. (laughs) Standing there with a tan and my uh, Hawaiian shirt. And uh, I was so I was the First, what became known as scene coordinators hired, and then Michael Gibson was hired, and um, he and I had co-directed that Michael Jackson video. And so Richard had always had in mind that we would come work on this movie if he could get us, you know, because we were well-versed in all so, you know, we couldn't be called art directors or I think maybe in my resume, sometimes I say I was a post-production art director or something on Tron, but... At Disney, it was a, a union uh, lot, so you couldn't be called an art director unless you were in the art director's union, you know. Oh, so okay. uh, I think there was some controversy there. Anyway, they called us scene coordinators, and w- we didn't care. Um, we were getting paid well, and we were young, and and uh, <laughs> yeah, and as long you know, as long as they didn't call us, hey, you, you know, it was fine with fine with us. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, scene coordinator. I guess you want to know what a scene coordinator was. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so um, Richard tried to tell me some about what scene coordination was, but uh, yeah, I, I, composition of every scene, proper filters, colors, uh, things like this were done by scene coordinators, I guess. Yeah. So he probably explained to you kind of like all the elements that were created. You know, there were blow-ups done from the original 65-millimeter live action onto large format uh, film. Right. Uh, ectochrome film or whatever it was back then. And uh, and then we made black and white continuous tones and high contrast positives and negatives. And this was all on very large sheets of film. Right. And they were all punched with little holes so that you could re-photograph them on an, an- on an animation stand downshooter that had a 
a light box and the cameraman would sit in front of it and he'd flop these what we called cells he'd flop them right. onto the light box and then he'd uh, expose each each of these layers so that whole kind of recompositing was how we put the color to the film um, right. and how we did the, how we put in the effects for the film and so forth and so you needed somebody to write all those instructions for the cameraman uh, yeah. what color gels to put in what cells to flop on what frames and what reveal mats to use on what frames and you know 24 frames a second and a shitload of frames yeah. and a right. shitload of elements and uh, <laughs> these exposure sheets would get really long because we'd say you know you have to expose this color at f4 with a <laughs> 15 nd filter and uh opal glass in front of it you know right. um so yeah. there were these sheets of paper, these big yellow sheets of paper that had rows and columns on them. And on the columns across the page would be your different elements, like uh, the face element and the eye element and the mouth yeah. element yeah. and so forth, and the body and the background and, and so forth and so on. And then, then down the length of the paper was frames. And so there would be a note saying, change this on frame 12. You know. Okay. Uh, and so these sheets could get yeah. really huge and long, depending yeah. on the length of the scene and how many elements. And so the scene coordinators would get all these elements from different sources, you know, from the special photographic effects department or overseas where inking and painting was done on the body right. of the film, Taiwan. We had a uh, effects animation department downstairs at Disney. Oh, you know, we, we worked in the old animation building, which was really a classic oh, building. Cool. My office was uh, not too far from Walt's old office, oh, which wow. was, was still a shrine there. Yeah. And on the third floor, and it was on the corner of Mickey Mouse Avenue and Dopey Drive. You know, it was just oh, like nice. a, it was a great, <laughs> great place to work. But uh, yeah. looking back yeah. on it, it was a great place to work. So we'd get these elements from different places and we'd collect them all and we'd kind of go through them and look at them and make sure it was all there. And we'd get directions from, mostly from Richard, who was okay. the visual effects supervisor for us. Uh, not so much from Harrison Ellenshaw, he was more uh, matte paintings and backgrounds. Okay. And not so much from Lisberger, who, you know, was directing everything and kind of had the big picture, you know, and, right. and was dealing right. with... The, all he was dealing with but he, he was really good at uh, delegating and Richard was good at delegating and so you know Richard would sort of he divvy out scenes to us and then we'd uh, put them together and then we'd send them to whatever camera system uh, was available we were using camera down shooters uh, all over Hollywood and, and at Disney and all over Hollywood. I think we were using every animation stand in Hollywood at one time <laughs> and because there was so much work to do. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and then they'd, they'd get filmed back out onto 35 millimeter film, Super 35. So they started off at 65 millimeter live action, black and okay. white, and then they got blown up to these large sheets of film like yeah i think richard mil told me millions sheets of sheets film of film were, yeah were they i think richard said they were something like 20 inches by 12 inches or something like that yeah at least i would say wow wow actually i tried to look that up and i can't find it anywhere so I'll, you need I'll to add that see what he research. said yeah yeah <laughs> no i mean i tried to look up actually that's what he said but I, I tried to actually look it up on the internet you'd think you could find anything on the internet but i couldn't find actually <laughs> how big those cells actually were. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe if you called Kodak, they could tell you. Right. I, were but, they, they were made custom Fortron. Is that right? I believe so. Like, yeah. like nobody would ever have needed that many high con or continuous tone sheets of film right. for anything. You know, right. Tron was the first <laughs> and only and ever film to ever <laughs> attempt to do anything like that. Crazy enough to do anything like that. I think yes, in the end, yes. you know, it was... I could be wrong, but I think it was like five to six to seven million dollars worth of film. I mean, it was just, wow. just like a, a a lot of film and a lot of uh, I would say probably say a lot of the budget. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it would get refilmed out. It would get composited and filmed out onto 35 millimeter film. Now, later, that 35 millimeter got blown up again to 65 so they could oh. make 65 prints. So it kind of went through a sure. whole sort of 
pipeline. Wow, that's um, quite amazing. Yeah, a whole merry-go-round, and, and I'm actually simplifying it a lot. But um, then we would get that. That would be colored film, and it would be developed at the lab. Uh, so it would, it would come back the next day. Okay. And, uh, and then we would screen that, and we had a little screening room. Are these what were called the dailies? I think we yeah, the term you know, there were there were different kinds of dailies. There okay. was these were the I would say post production dailies. Okay. And then there was the production dailies, which were the live action dailies. You know, so that's ah. when they were shooting uh, months before on stage uh, right. on these black and white, you know, black stages basically, and people wearing black and white costumes like you've made. Right. And Lisberger would obviously and other people would obvi- uh, in some and sometimes the actors actors sometimes don't want to watch themselves and sometimes they do uh, okay i don't think the directors make them watch them you know but yeah. uh you know that's when the director you know thinks about you know did they get the shot or not and is it doing what it's supposed to be doing action wise or story wise and then post-production dailies don't have the actors anymore and sometimes uh, Lisberger wouldn't even be there because a lot of times the dailies were just to look at it to see if there were any technical problems with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty much, we had figured things out, you know, by the time we were doing post-production dailies, we had figured a lot of this stuff out and the, we had figured the pipeline out and um, yeah. the direction was pretty strong. Now, of course, when, um, and the direction kind of flowed from Lisberger through Richard Taylor to us. So Richard would definitely be there. I don't remember Lisberger, Lisberger being there very often in daily uh, post-production okay. dailies. And Harrison would be there uh, quite often. Um, yeah. And Richard would say things, you know, we'd all be kind of sitting up front and Richard would be in the back somewhere. <laughs> and you'd, you'd hear this voice from, <laughs> from far, far away yeah. saying, uh, make it a stop brighter, you know, or... A little redder, or you know, things like that. I think he told and, me he uh, would use the term. He would call it a hero if it was right on. Is that? Yeah, that was a Robert <laughs> Abel expression um, uh-huh. that I think was invented at Abel's and uh, Robert Abel and Associates. And when I first started at Abel's in '77, uh, Richard was the senior art director there. Uh, I was uh, Hey You and. Uh, <laughs> I think I got paid like, I don't know, $100 a week or something yeah. and uh, and got a raise every couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. But uh, a lot of things were invented there. It was a pretty amazing place. And a lot of language was invented there. Like, you know, you've probably heard the term technical director. You know, well, yes. like back then there was no such thing as a te- in film as a technical director. And okay. we got kind of, I fell into that side of production as, as technical stuff, uh, programming computers to move cameras and things. And um, wow. we, we actually were called Hey You. And then <laughs> somebody, one of, the, one of the guys said, hey, why, let's call ourselves technical directors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so there are art directors and technical directors. And then we all wore a bunch of different hats. But hero was, I don't know, somebody said, oh, that's a hero. You know, and then kind, of, <laughs> kind of stuck, huh? Yeah, kind of stuck. Yeah. So um, that, you know, those production dailies, hopefully for the scene coordinators, was the last stop. You know, wow. like, hopefully it was approved. It was a hero. And we didn't have to see that scene anymore. And if there was problems with it, it would come back to us and we'd work on it. And yeah. uh, I know that you had mentioned uh, or maybe Richard had mentioned uh, the uh, Sheely fix was yes, a term. That's right. And uh, John Sheely is a really great guy, and he he was hired very early on, even d- during principal photography, as like um, like the senior technical supervisor kind of guy. And yeah. uh, he knew all about cameras and and so forth. He had a little trailer, not in the animation building we were in, but in some other part of the lot. He had a trailer with a couple guys, and and so if shots were really screwed up, then you know, maybe there was so much work to do, you know, then Richard would just send, you know, send it to John Sheely and his guys to like fix it. <laughs> there was something yeah. like really, really wrong with it. Of course, I don't remember that ever happening with any of my shots, but there uh, you go. There you go. <laughs> but it probably because he never told me. <laughs> right. Well, I would like so, to ask you about um, the Crystal Cave scene. 
as it's called, uh, the scene where Tron, Ram, and Flynn walk into this, uh, you know, this cave-like structure with all the crystals and the, and the right. wonderful sounds. It must have gone right past us! We made it. This far. Did you work on that scene by any chance? I worked on some shots in that scene. Uh, my, what, what was your question about it? I happened to be uh, recreating the Crystal Cave in oh. VR in Oculus Quest. Oh, wow. And okay. <laughs> I, I started with the first image you see from the perspective of the camera is across from the characters as we see them walk into the foyer, if you will, of the cave. And I matched that into the 3D perspective and oh, done a lot wow. of work on that. So um, that's how I came to know that Peter Lloyd had designed that or had painted that, drawn that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I just thought maybe you had actually worked on that as well. Well, I did work on a few shots. I wasn't the main scene coordinator for that sequence, but uh, I did work on some of it. But Peter Lloyd was a very, very, very dear friend of mine. And uh, years later, when I started my own effects company, uh, he was my art director for a very long time. And, uh, you know, he passed away and uh, he was a really talented guy. (laughs) One of the best... and most famous uh, airbrushers in the world. Um, well, in fact, uh, he developed, you know, there's this whole sort of genre of sexy robots. Certainly, uh, Yori <laughs> was kind of a sexy robot kind of character. <laughs> yeah. And that was all invented by by Peter Lloyd. Um, oh, cool. Mobius designed, you know, a lot of those costumes and so forth, but right. Peter Lloyd was known for airbrushing robots, like sexy robots. <laughs> He was really good at it. But, uh, I mean, I don't remember too much about that sequence, but um, I'm happy to hear that that you're doing that. Richard Thank and I you. had talked about that at one point, that, you know, that it would be nice to actually turn everything into 3D because, um, you know, the computer world part of it right. in, into 3D. Um, you know, of course, when they do that now, they, you know, it costs... It's, you know, they have a formula that it costs like $10 million and you rotoscope everything and you wow. kind of take it all apart and put it back together and, you know, in, uh, in 3D, you know, film the left side and the right side and all that. Because all those shapes are so like rectilinear and so forth, you, they wouldn't right. be that difficult to rotoscope. But you're actually That's building true. the models in 3D. That's correct. Yes. And I'll, yeah. I'll certainly send you some uh, screenshots yeah. and a couple links to some videos I've put up for my patrons and uh followers it's coming along very nicely i think you'll really like it that's cool yeah my uh my sequences were um the main one was all the non uh computer graphics parts of the light cycle sequence that was oh wow uh, all the non-cg parts of the mcp at the end it was my so for the non-cg you guys did such a great job with tron that when we see, for example, the light cycle formation and the wire frame and then the light bikes, and then we see them on the grid forming their uh, jet walls behind the light cycles, it's really so good that it's hard to see unless one really knows what they're looking at, what was computer and what was hand-drawn. So could you talk a little bit about the light cycle scene? What was some of the non-CGI you did for that? Uh, well, the the first shot of the scene is Tron and Flynn and a Ram, Ram, Tron and Flynn. Yeah. On the light cycles and they appear and they're standing there and then their cycles res up and they fall into them. Right. So that was, that was a, that wasn't done by the computer. That was, that was done with artwork. Wow. Compositing live action. And then all the shots, uh, all the close-ups of them inside you know, maybe the camera is just outside the front windshield of the light yeah. cycle and you yeah. can see in and there's effects animations of rolling bars over the glass and stuff like yes. that. Reflections yeah. and things. That was all that was all done by hand and that's all two D animation. Wow. So it was kind of a mix between and anytime you saw a wide angle with other light cycles and the streak coming out from behind them, that was all computer generated. Wow. I might back up a little bit about uh, initially when I was hired, uh, as I said, I started uh, right when principal photography ended. Uh, we didn't know at that time exactly how we were going to put this whole film together. 
Richard had a pretty good idea, and I guess Lisberger did too, but uh, uh, it hadn't. the pipeline hadn't been completely figured out yet. We had a trailer that Disney wanted us to make for the National Association of Theater Owners, NATO. Not the NATO you think of, but the right. National Association of Theater Owners Conference. The important and one. I, yeah, it was how they pre-sold the film to theater owners. And yeah. Yeah, so that was in like late August or early September or something. So I think we had maybe like eight weeks to produce a number of minutes to prove out you know, that this was all possible and to help sell the film. So in that initial process, there was a lot of testing that went on that we were doing. And uh, when you're when you're putting elements together and you're using color gels and uh, different exposures and different layers and uh, different kinds of effects glass, like ripple glass and opal glass, all these weird things, and you're trying to get the right exposure for everything and how to composite everything together, we create these things called wedges. On those same big animation sheets, we would, um, exposure sheets that we would give to a cameraman, we'd have, use those same sheets, and, but we'd make uh, wedges, which were like, lay this element down and try these different color filters at these different f-stops and uh, right. different time exposures and different kinds of effects glass and, and let's wedge it out. And so we'd look at all these varieties from light to dark and different colors. Yeah. And, and we, we'd get the film back and you start off with like a huge wedge where you're actually trying a thousand different things. And wow. then you get that fill back and all the scene coordinators uh, had these giant light boxes in our offices. Uh, you'd laid the film out and you'd have a film loop, you know, which is a little magnifier and you'd look yeah. at the you'd look at the frame. And you kind of look down at it and you go, well, wow, that one really looks great. You know, and Richard would look at it and, uh, and we'd say, OK, now let's do another wedge just around there and get more sun. OK, you know, yeah. just around that f-stop and that color. And, and so your wedges are supposed to get smaller each time you do them because right. you're kind of narrowing in on what the final look is going to be. And during this time, you know, they were deciding, you know, should the good guys be blue or red or yellow? You know, it was like, yeah, yeah. you know, there was a lot of that sort of going back and forth. So, you know, once it was all kind of wedged out and, and decided, and then we could start compositing actual scenes and and doing that trailer for, for uh, the National Association of Theater Owners. So that whole process took, you know, a good uh, two months, I think. Wow. It was funny. The uh, the first week I was there, uh, Michael Gibson and I, as I said, were the first two scene coordinators hired, uh, specifically to help, you know, with defining the pipeline and, and right. doing this trailer. And then slowly but surely, once we figured out that there was just so much work to do, that we just had to hire a lot of people, <laughs> and just slowly <laughs> but surely, just a lot more. I I don't know how many scene coordinators there were at the end, but there were probably twelve or more. I don't, I don't, that I'm sounds sure. about right. I think so. Yeah. But the first week I was there, I was given an assistant um, who was familiar with the Disney studio and the lot. Yeah, this is in Burbank. Uh, Laura Leiben was her name. She was great. She had, she had worked in the uh, mailroom at Disney. So she knew everybody, right? So she ah. was one of the people with the carts, you know, who go around to the offices and hand off mail. <laughs> yeah. like you see in old movies and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... She, she knew everybody, and, and so um, she was my assistant. We would order uh, contact prints and things, blow-ups and contact prints, uh, during this whole wedging process. Um, we'd order thing, elements from the Special Photographic Effects Department at Disney, which was in another building. The first week or so, I noticed that these contact prints were a little misregistered. You know, like we had these registration pins that everything would go on and everything should be perfectly registered. So if you had right. a clear line on black, then the black line on clear should line up exactly, you know. Right. And they weren't. They were just a little off. And I thought, well, that's weird, you know. And so things weren't, you know, looking right. And I asked her, so, you know, where are these done? She said, oh, the special photographic effects department. And I said, well, where's that? And she showed me where it was. And I said, well, I think I'm going to go see what's up. So I went down there and and I, I introduced myself. I'm John. I'm working on this movie, Tron. And 
I said, you know, I've, I've ordered these contact prints and they don't register. You know, is there a cameraman I can talk to or somebody I can talk to? Or can I look at the equipment or just, you know, can I help figure out? Like, you know, they said, oh, we'll talk to Dave in the back. And so I went back yeah. there and, and there's a cameraman. And I noticed that on their contact printer that the gla- there was a glass platen that, that presses the film together flat to lay flat. Yeah. You press down with this glass, this heavy glass. And uh, and then there's a light up above that shoots the light through the glass and exposes, you know, down below. Right. And and I noticed that that glass was like warped. It was like warped a little. And so it wasn't, you know, it only like misregistered just a hair, but it was enough to like ruin it. And I said, well, I think your your platen here is warped. And he goes, oh, yeah. And then I get a tap on my shoulder and there's this old guy standing behind me. And he says, uh, we'll take it from here. And uh, thanks for your help. We'll take it from here. And I looked at him and uh, he had like a badge and it said art on it. And I thought, oh, he's the art department, you know, but it was Art Krutschank, yeah. who was like an Academy wow. Award winner, Disney wow. guy. <laughs> and wow. So I went back to my office and uh, within like a couple hours, I got a memo saying I'm not allowed in the special photographic effects department <laughs> anymore. <laughs> And it, it just, I only tell that story because um, uh, we were kind of, you know, we were so different. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Tron people were so different than the people who were, you know, uh, many of them lifetime artisans, you know, at, on the Disney, uh, you know, working for Disney and on the Disney lot. And we were really just like, it was like, you know, we were from another planet. And, sure. um, uh, we had long hair, and, you know, and we were kind of irreverent, you know, and yeah. uh, I'm looking back on it. I'm sure I could have been a lot more respectful. And um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were just crazy and we were, yeah, you know, we were crazy hours and, and um, you know, yeah. around the clock. And and so we weren't actually weren't liked very much by <laughs> by most people there. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But, uh you know, in the end, you know, we, you know, it all got done. But uh, um, I'm not sure where I'm going with that. But uh, oh, but it was wonderful. it was interesting. And and you know, for me, looking back on it, uh, the best thing about the whole experience for me was working on the Disney lot. I mean, I had done that kind of work uh, for several years, um, backlight compositing and, and so forth with Codalists and, and all that. There was nothing really new about that. And okay. uh, I had also, at Abel's, we were developing computer graphics. We were one of the only companies in the world doing it at that time. So I knew how to do that as well. But right. when I went to Disney, I was only doing the backlight animation part, you know, as a okay. scene coordinator. But, you know, being on the Disney lot, just surrounded by all that stuff, you know, like, um, you know, my office being on the corner of Mickey Mouse Avenue and Dopey Drive, there was just something like really great about that. And, <laughs> that the, and like, and, and, you know, you, you go up the elevator and it's kind of art deco sort of building and, you know, past Walt's shrine and there'd be like, you know, artwork on the walls and, you know, from all these animated movies that we grew up with. It was just a really great place to work. Well, that sounds, sounds yeah. magical. <laughs> yeah, but we caused all kinds of trouble. Like we were always <laughs> getting into trouble. Sometimes we would have these like huge um, dart gun fights up on oh. the third floor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the way the building was designed, I think it was like built in like the twenties or third or the thirties, I guess, and um, late thirties. And but the way it was designed, like every office had huge windows to the outside. It was kind of designed like wings of a hospital. Okay. And, uh, so there was, you know, each hallway had offices on either side and at the ends, and each of those offices had natural light coming in from windows nice. on one side. And so from one wing to another was like about uh, 40 feet or so. And okay. uh, you could shoot a dart gun across <laughs> and hit windows <laughs> on the other side. Even people well, who weren't working on Tron, you know, like. Yeah. yeah. And so. You say yeah, that, that's so, funny. I have a Nerf dart gun sitting behind me, a six-shooter that I use all the time just to brainstorm. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was that kind of thing. We were always blowing off steam. and um, Yeah. 
But, you know, we were getting, you know, we were getting uh, sideways looks a lot. But we were, we kind of had our heads down and just kind of plugged away. And, yeah. And I didn't take, you know, didn't mind too much. Right. Um, but I just loved, you know, being there and um, eating in the commissary. and Wow. We, or you get a sandwich in the commissary and then you go take it out on the Zorro set, you know, the old Zorro set on the back lot. And, yeah. You yeah. know, things like oh, that. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And there was a place called The Morgue. I don't know if you've ever heard that. What was it called? The Morgue. Oh, wow. It, the Morgue was where they stored and archived all the artwork from all the movies that oh, Disney wow. had ever done. And there was a way to get to the morgue. It was underground. There was a way to get to it from the animation building that we were in to, uh, I think it was below the ink and paint department. You go there and there would be all these shelves and, and it was kind of dark and dusty and all these open shelves, kind of like, it was kind of what you'd think of the library of Alexandria to be like or something, you know, and you, you <laughs> yeah. pull out these scrolls and you open them up and it would be like the rabbit's hole from Alice in Wonderland, you know, oh, it was goodness. just like, and you could check these things out back then. Wow. You could check them out. Uh, you had to return them, but you'd check them out. And uh, if you, if you wanted to animate a soap bubble, why do it from scratch? Just go to the Pinocchio part of the archive and get a soap bubble, you know, and yeah, kind of and kind of reuse it, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I think what they realized is that some people uh, weren't returning the original artwork; they were xeroxing, returning, uh, you know. But so I don't think they allow that to happen anymore. Yeah. But. You know, there was that kind of place where you're just steeped in history. The office next to mine was a couple whose names I forget now, but uh, they were designing Epcot. Wow! You know, and so That's it was amazing. like a, it was a neat it was a neat time. One time uh, they started shooting uh, something wicked this way comes. Oh! Towards the end of Tron, they were shooting live action out on the set that I think maybe originally was for uh, the Music Man or something. Um, okay. They're reusing this Midwestern town set, and they had a circus there. Uh, you know, you could go watch them shoot, and it was all really interesting. But I, I remember, like, working in my office on the third floor of the animation building, and I, I started to leave the office, and I turned the corner, and I coming down the hallway is the world's smallest horse. <laughs> And the world's largest duck, and and I thought to myself like, oh my god, you know, like I'm having an acid flashback here. Yeah. But uh, it was that kind of place. It was. I looking back on it, I I think it was just really fantastic to work there. And Richard and Harrison, they were they were just two of the funniest human beings on the planet. They would they would. Uh, they would uh, go into these voices and uh, stay in those voices all day. Oh, wow. And so, like, Richard would be like Walter Brennan, you know, like, hey, little Luke, let's go back behind the barn, you know. like. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Harrison would be some, you know, like, uh, gay fashion designer or something. It would be, it would just be just wild. Oh, that's wild. so funny. Oh, that sounds like such a fun place to work. I love these stories. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about any of this in a, in a very long time. And so it was it was actually kind of fun the last few days to go, kind of go back and, you know, what did I do again? You know. Right. <laughs> I suppose that what you did um, was just so new and groundbreaking that I couldn't help but imagine it would be somewhat intimidating to uh, those who were already established and at Disney for such a long time. Um, and you know, with a dose of irreverence from what you were doing, it could have been quite intimidating, I would think. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think you're right that, um, I mean, very few people understood the movie. I mean, even after right. it was released. I mean, it was just a very weird movie. Um, yeah. Very, and very different. And it, it caught fire over time, you know, over the decades. And of course, when it when it was first released, people either acted very positive towards it or very negative towards it. But um, sure. people thought didn't know what they were looking at. You know, like the yeah. Academy didn't know what what it was or what to do about it. Um, 
and I'm not sure we knew either. Um, we just knew that it was visually really interesting. Yes, yes. And it was it was groundbreaking in that there was all this computer graphics being done. So in that way, it was very groundbreaking. The rest of it, since it was made to look like the computer graphics, it was we were kind of used to that kind of work for several years. But the but nobody had ever made a movie like that. We had done commercials right. and things, you know, with that technique, but nobody had ever made a movie of it, and nobody ever right. will, you know, again. But right. um, so it was like a little moment in time, like that you couldn't have done it before that, and you couldn't, you wouldn't want to do it after that. So there was that just right. little moment in time <laughs> where it was like the perfect thing, and it, and it's a time capsule. Yeah really strikes me as this just this explosion of creativity that that had to happen and could happen and did happen yeah and a, a huge you know it was a lot of people working on it and so a lot of fun personalities and a lot of interesting people and never a dull moment but we did work our butts off and um i remember tom wilhite uh was i think the like head of production or for disney or development or something like that uh, a, a fairly young guy and he's the one who championed the film to get okay to get disney to to back the film that lisberger could tell you you know all about it uh, but uh cool. but he used to come into my office like late at night like he would he would be he would show people he would like take people on a tour of what the Tron people were doing, you know, oh, cool. like all the Union Disney people had left at five, you know, and, yeah. and you know we were there until like you know midnight or or later, you know, like working away, and he would come in with the biggest smile on his face and what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I so, had the old Asteroids game in my office at Disney on Tron. Oh wow! And so. Uh, Jeff Bridges would come in and play, and um, there, you know, people would come in and play. I remember uh, Terry Gilliam came in and played. And wow. He, he had uh, just done uh, Time Bandits, which is yeah. one of my films of all time. You know, he had done backlight stuff on that on that film. Cool. You know, the face face of God and all that. Yeah, yeah. So Jeff Bridges would come to your office to play Asteroids. Yeah, you know, I think it was a Lisberger idea that he had video games on the on on stage when they were shooting the principal photography of the live action, right. and he had them there uh, so that Jeff and the actors could unwind or play video games or you know whatever. And uh, these were arcade games, the big ones. I think after the live action was finished, then they moved those up into our offices. And I, so I, somehow I got the Asteroids game. I got really good oh, with, on Asteroids. That's, that's so cool to hear. <laughs> I spent a lot of quarters on Asteroids as, yeah. a, as a kid in junior high. and uh, I never got very good, but I envy that you had the Asteroids game. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, how did Tron shape your, your film experiences going forward? I mean, it sounds like Tron was so creative that when Tron was done and you moved to the next thing, how did that go with you? Uh, let's see. I After Tron, I went back to Robert Abel's, and I was the post-production supervisor for Abel's, working on um, music videos and, and post-production video mostly, and uh, developing the computer graphics, helping develop computer graphics at Abel's. I wasn't, I could program and I could like write widgets and things, you know, Right. but uh, I wasn't one of the main programming guys by any stretch of the imagination. Um, okay. The main the head guy was um, Bill Kovacs. I don't know if you've ever heard his name, but right. uh, he was one of the grandfathers of computer graphics. And yes. uh, he was also the best man at my wedding. Oh, cool. Uh, he's now passed away, but uh, he was the the head of uh, software development and VP of whatever at Ables uh, okay. at that time. Uh, he was writing. He and I, I he and I would sit together really early in the morning or late at night, and we talk about how to write a program that would allow animators to move objects around easily. Yeah. And then ha have the computer render them. Uh, so it was like an animation software. And right. 
not not so much character animation, although it could do that very crudely uh, and not very well, but it could move objects around, you know, because probably when you talk to Bill Croyer and others, you know, the, it was very difficult during Tron to actually get an object to move from point A to point B. You had to like yes. tell it like every frame, like what coordinates, like you'd have to type in like all these numbers and, and, yeah. uh, and, and even the colors you had to type in, you know, numbers for how many, how much red and how much green and how much blue and, you know, to make a certain color. And, right. you know, it was like very time consuming. And so uh, I went back to Abel's and that and things just got better. I was going to say that um, I think what Tron taught us was that uh, we needed much better tools. <laughs> okay. And uh, and so I think it lit a fire under everybody like, wow, you know, actually pulled this off, um, especially those companies who actually worked on Tron um, right. for the computer graphics part of it. And that they actually pulled it off. And now let's make these tools better. The technology was increasing at, at just light speed. Yeah. And the software was trying to keep up with it. You were, and we were hiring programmers. A lot of them came from degrees in um, architecture, like from uh, University of Illinois and Brown and uh, Princeton and other places and University of North Carolina. These people who knew how to write software where you could have lighting, you know, and, and shadow yeah. texture and things. And it took several years, but the tools then just got better and better and better. And in like in like leaps and bounds, you know, better and better year after year. And I think Tron was so difficult to do that. I think it just lit a fire under everybody to say, like, we just need a lot better tools. And, and that's what we went about doing after after Tron. Like Tron was like a launch pad, you know. Yes. I think Tron was a launch pad for so many people who didn't work on Tron directly, just watched it as you know, yeah. fans of the film. And it, I'm, I'm one of those people that had just put on a certain path that yeah. just, that was it. I mean, it, it lit that fire for me. Yeah. You know, at Disney, you know, John Lasser was there. Mm -hmm. He was a young, young guy. He'd come into my office and, and, other, and visit other people. And he wanted to see what we were doing because he had ideas about uh, doing animated hand animated character foreground characters and then computer generated backgrounds and he had ah. this stuff that he wanted to do for uh, where the wild things are and ah. I think the whole Tron thing really inspired him and I think he left Disney uh, like a couple years later and that's when he started essentially doing uh, the stuff at Pixar that was a part of ILM right. at that point and we kind of knew like uh I remember meeting him and thinking like, well, he's going to be famous someday. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That's cool. I wanted to ask you uh, sort of a, a different kind of thread for a minute. With respect to the story of Tron, uh, what it was about, the, the master yeah. control program and authoritarianism and control and this sort of thing. Do you see any parallels between what Tron was talking about back in 1982 and the state of technology today, social media? that kind of thing well yeah uh it presaged all all of what's going on now kind of in a way you know there's a dark side to the internet as we all know and um, some might think it's the downfall of western civilization and uh others might think that you know the uh development of you know medical vaccines and devices and things using the internet and all, all that is a big boon for civilization so it's you know a double-edged sword right. but um tron you know it, you know the whole story was about you know flynn thinking that the you know the evidence was in there somewhere you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you know that whole like uh computer forensics digital forensics is a real thing you know yeah like all that yeah. information is in there and uh there's companies who do that, you know, and governments who obviously do it. And you have Russian bots, you know, and You're right. uh, we have our bots. I'm sure there are American bots, yeah. you know, doing stuff out there. Um, they keep trying to hack my Apple ID and I have to read <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty frustrating, but that's right. That's totally right. Yeah, and you have to be, just be really careful. Like, I, I actually, I haven't used uh, Facebook for years because wow. I just Good got tired of it. You know, I thought, and in fact, you know, with, you know, I don't want to get 
you know into the politics of what's going on sure. now. But, but um, I did kind of feel like this last year or even more, I would wake up at four or five in the morning and wonder like, oh, what crazy stuff's happened now? You know, <laughs> and I look on the, Google, yeah. you know, like and every night, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of people were doing that and it's like driving people crazy. You know, it's like that fear of missing out. You got to be looking at your phone like all the time. Right. I think it's kind of got me the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotten all of us. And so actually this, you know, once the election was over, I kind of thought to myself, you know, I'm going to try to just like wean myself off here. Yeah. Let's hope technology gets better for us, uh, for our society. Yeah. You know, it's there's there's so many forces out there that um are really just trying to make a buck, you know, really, or, or have political influence or, or whatever. Um, sure. Absolutely. And so there are a lot of kind of negative forces that are happening uh, with the internet. Right. You know, the very first uh, internet, uh, we, we used it at Abel's, the very first one. And we, we might have been the, one of the first um, public companies to use it. It was called DARPAnet. Yep. I and, thought you were uh, going to say that. Yeah, and we had it. Uh, I don't know why we had it, but we were connected to it uh, at Abel's. This was in like '78 or '9. Okay. And I think it was connected to a, a San Diego supercomputer center. So you know, there was you could write. There was sort of like a primitive sort of email kind of thing, and um, mm-hmm. you can write messages back and forth. And and there was a couple like programs that it ran. Um, sort of games and things and um right there, but there very one, but very primitive or something like that yeah right and uh but at, at Abel's what we would do is a new and if we hired somebody new we'd sit them in front of this like you know very primitive computer and we'd say okay log in with your name and and uh type in your age and and uh the program you're going to run this program called doctor and uh it's going to ask you a bunch of questions and this was yeah. all, you know, and, and so they'd log in, you know, Clark Anderson, you know, age, you know, 27. And they would say, so what's your problem, Clark? <laughs> <laughs> it would type it on the screen. Yeah, it would and, put your uh, name back to you, things like yeah, that. And, yeah, and, uh, you know, tell me about your mother, you know. And, so like, <laughs> you know, and then, like, we'd do this just before lunch. And then we'd say, okay, Clark, uh, log out, and we're going to go to lunch. And when we come back, you can log back in. So we go to lunch, we'd come back and log back in. He, Clark would log back in, you know, he'd start typing and it would say, oh, this isn't that Anderson asshole again, is it? <laughs> you know, it would just say something like really rude. But the whole time it was Bill Kovacs in another room typing oh, on the system. <laughs> oh, so the, the Turing test as it is. He yeah. determined if you're talking so, with a machine or a person. Yeah, that's great. And we think from that moment to now, like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah. Just, Yes, things have changed. It's so amazing. Well, you know, the the U.S., we think we're so technologically advanced, but we're actually really, like, behind the curve. I mean, That's uh, true. you, That's you true. go to, like, South Korea, and everything is wired, like, ultra HD everywhere. You right. Know? Your whole hotel room is, like, just so technologically advanced, it's hard to figure out how to use the toilet, you know. But it, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and here, you know, there's places where, you know um, – High-speed internet just doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. I kind of think of that as sort of a fracturing of the infrastructure in America. And, and I is. can't help but put that back to Tron and, and the yeah. control program, honestly. Yeah. And sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes I'm encouraged by what we can do. And sometimes I think we're being controlled by the master control program himself. Well, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think there isn't a master control program, though. I think that it's just a lot of – there's a lot of entities – there's right. a bunch of master control programs from Google to Microsoft to, you know, there's a lot of technology companies that have cornered one part of it or another. That's, and that's But the, totally there right. is sort of a digital divide. I think that's what you're getting at is like there's yes. just sort of the people who are connected and those who aren't. And I think maybe, uh, I don't know, I think maybe the people that aren't are actually better off. I'm not, I'm not sure. Tell me about your time after Robert Abel. I, I think you worked for a company called Wavefront, and eventually you formed your own company. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your career? Yeah. Um, again, I mean, just I, I started in about 77 at Abel's, 
Robert Abel and Associates, and I became a technical director and kind of moving cameras around, uh, motion control cameras. And then we started working with um, these vector graphics, ENS, uh, Picture mm -hmm. System 2 computers. That's how some of the Tron work was done that Abel's did uh, for Tron, was on these PS2 machines. So kind of like got into all that and then became really good friends with Bill Kovacs, who was a programming genius there at Robert Abel's. And then so I worked. I worked on this Michael Jackson film and burned out on it, uh, Michael Gibson and I. And uh, I went to Hawaii and I thought, uh, you know, I was very close to becoming a beach bum in Hawaii. Yeah. But I met a girl and followed her back to L.A. And then Richard had left me a note saying, come work at Disney. And the rest is history. But I, after Tron, yeah. I went back to Abel's and did more computer graphics development work. Not writing software so much per se, but like supervising and, and kind of from a user standpoint, right? Uh, what to put in the software. And then Bill and I had been talking for a long time about uh, getting out of Los Angeles because Hollywood was not a fun place to be back then. Um, mm. Robert Abels was on Highland, just below Santa Monica Boulevard, not too far from Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, but in sort of the heart of Hollywood. And back right. then it was very crime ridden. We had a cameraman murdered in the alley, you know, cars broken into all the time. Uh, it, it was not that much fun outside, but we worked a lot of hours and stayed inside. <laughs> but yeah. uh, Bill and I had always talked about, I, uh, I had gone to City College up, in, up here in Santa Barbara. I'm in Carpinteria okay. now, uh, next to Santa Barbara. And Bill had family, some of his wife's family lived in Santa Barbara. So we had talked about, let's start a production company in Santa Barbara. That would be great. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was a dream of his and mine. And uh, one day he got a phone call from a guy in Santa Barbara who was thinking about starting a, like a business graphics company in Santa Barbara, like doing pie charts and bar charts and things like that yeah. for businesses and printing them out in color. And uh, he was doing due diligence and he saw Bill's name in a computer graphics magazine. And Bill said, uh, why don't you come down here and I'll show you what we do here at Robert Abel Associates. And so these two guys came down, um, Mark Sylvester and uh, Larry Burrells, and uh, they made, met with Bill and Bill talked them into starting a production company in Santa Barbara. And so wow. he said, you don't want to do business graphics, you want to do, you know, computer graphics, you know. and. Yeah. Uh, but back then it was also, you know, it was pretty, still pretty primitive. And so we also, also wanted to do film work, you know, with motion control yeah. cameras and stuff. So Bill said, I met these two guys, you know, we should go up to Santa Barbara and talk more to them. And, and we did. And so we started this company called Wavefront. Oh, and, wow. uh, and initially uh, we were a production company, but it became really obvious that it took a lot of money. You know, and it, it was a bit like throwing money away in some respects, <laughs> but it took a lot of money to get all the equipment and everything. Yeah. And so we were looking for investors and they would say things like, well, if you're going to write software and you could sell that to other companies, you might have a business. And so slowly but surely we became a software company more than a production company. And I was right. the head of production. But over time, we became a software company, and you know, we our clients were like uh, Paramount and National Film Board of Canada and different production companies. Uh, ILM bought some software. Wow. So it kind of became that, and that was profitable, and the company eventually went public. Uh, but wow. uh, around uh, 89, 90, I just couldn't take selling software. I didn't, that's not what right. I wanted to do. And so um, right. I started Santa Barbara Studios in my garage. But at, but at Wavefront, mm -hmm. uh, I was the head of production. And so I would help the new clients do whatever new product, you know, first production they were doing. Right. So right. Uh, Disney uh, Animation actually wanted to learn our software and we sold it to them too. And so I actually went back to Disney and supervised the making uh -huh. of a short film that was done with computer graphics. It was called uh, Oil Spot and Lipstick. And it was done by the Disney Late Night Group. And it was actually interfacing, you know, a character animators with creating these computer generated images. And so it was like the first CG that Disney had, had done. And, uh, wow. and the rest is history. We know what they do now. It's pretty amazing. 
Um, right. That was kind of wavefront, and we did a lot. We did work for the National Air and Space Museum and all all kinds of weird projects. But when right. I I left Wavefront, I started Santa Barbara Studios, and I had all these computers from all these vendors that Wavefront knew. They wanted me to still work with their computers because, like, computers could do a lot of things and process, spit in, you know, suck in and spit out a lot of data. Yeah. But what what helped sell them was pictures, you know. And so they yeah. wanted like oh, pictures made by our machine, you know. And that, and so I was the picture guy. <laughs> and so cool. they would cool. just give me these huge machines. I had to like bring in all kinds of 220 power into my garage and <laughs> get like huge, you know, air conditioner and. Wow. Uh, and I had all these machines lined up from all these different companies that, oh, that some of them like cool. no longer exist. And uh, yeah. and I started working on some projects for the Air and Space Museum. Oh, and for, um, it was called the Astronomers. It was a Carl Sagan program. I don't know if you ever yeah. saw it on PBS. Oh, yeah. And did some like rotating galaxies and comet trails and things for that. And those are really hard to do on the computer. I thought there must be some better way to do this, you know, like uh, using particle systems. And I found this kid up in San Francisco who had written his own like little video game. And he was just a genius programmer and hired him. And he worked in my garage, Jim Hurahan, James right. Hurahan. He wound up writing software that we originally called Willy. It was uh, named after my cat. And because uh, <laughs> he was always bouncing off the walls and like this program, It would like run particles in real time and you could watch them on the screen move around in wow. real time and then we had a we had a camera that looked at the screen you know kind of a primitive yeah. way to like, get the imagery off the screen because there weren't sure. like video cards and computers back then right and right. uh there might have been like one or two film recorders in the world but um i didn't have one and so <laughs> he wrote this program that later um he was a really good programmer and later it was like a Swiss army knife only with like a thousand blades. Like you could wow. do like all kinds of stuff with this program and massaging data and, and doing weird things with it and applying mathematical equations and physics to things. And yeah, and it was like the first, one of the first of its kind. I licensed that back to uh, alias wavefront ah. and uh, made more money on that than I ever did in, on any production. <laughs> wow. And, uh, cool. uh, which says a lot about production work, um, you know, a little <laughs> yeah. bit pays, but uh, it became the engine that ran Maya, because that, so uh, cool. it was a real-time programmable language that's a, that's a big part of Maya that makes it run in real time. Cool. So uh, early on, did a lot of uh, work, uh, interesting kind of documentary kind of work, but using computer graphics and doing okay. it from my, from my garage. We did... The astronomers, we did several things for the Air and Space Museum. I helped a company called Kleiser Walzak, Jeff Kleiser and Diana Walzak, do the very first computer-generated singing actor. Wow. Uh, it was called Dozo. This was uh, like in 88, 89. Okay. Jeff Kleiser had worked at Digital Effects, which was one of the Tron companies in New York with Judson Rosebush. So we knew each other from there. And then uh, I decided to move out of the garage and uh, got space next to Wavefront and got more serious about it and hired more people. And we did a show called uh, 500 Nations that Kevin okay. Costner directed wow. uh, and financed. It was all about uh, Native Americans in North America and how amazing those civilizations were and how they all like traded and interacted and so forth uh, through the centuries. Right. And uh, we did some of the very, very, very first digital map paintings ever done. Cool. It was a primetime CBS documentary, two hours f over four nights, primetime CBS. That had never wow. been done before. And this was, I think, uh, just before he did Dances with Wolves, or just after, just before or just after. So he was very into it. and. We wanted to recreate all these like ancient civilizations of North America, you know, like the Aztecs and the Olmecs and the Toltecs and um, the Cahokians. And uh, we wanted to do it with uh, map paintings and some recreations in live action. And so instead of painting with paint and map paintings, uh, I knew a guy at ILM 
who uh, got us uh, early Photoshop. It was like Photoshop 1.0 or something like that. Cool, and, uh, cool. And I hired a couple guys who were matte painters, and they're really good. And I hired Peter Lloyd. And, oh, uh, and Peter cool. Lloyd did a bunch of the matte paintings and a lot of the design work and uh, a lot of the, there was, we used a lot of like sculpture and things. And uh, I remember like Peter Lloyd, he used Sculpey, you know, you know that material called Sculpey? It's like a plastic yes, kind yes. of material and you right. bake it and it becomes hard. He would be baking a, like a Cahokian sculpture in my oven, and my wife would be baking a pie, and they would both be looking in the oven at the same time. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was really groundbreaking stuff. And, uh, you know, digital map paintings, you know, which now are just passe, right? Sure. But it was hard to do back then. So that was a great project. And then we did, after that, we did a, f- a film called Cosmic Voyage, which was an IMAX film. It had the most computer graphics ever done in an IMAX film. That was for the Air and Space Museum. It won a uh, Academy Award for short film. Oh. I bought good. I bought a, uh, a 65 millimeter film recorder that could film IMAX. Cool. Uh, it was a remake of Charles Eames' Power of Ten film. You know where you you dive yes. into you know into a a drop of water and, and go into a subatomic yeah, particle, going. keep going, and then you go right. back the other way out to the known universe. Uh, so that was an amazing. Like we we filmed, we created and filmed some of the uh, biggest things ever put on film, and some of the smallest things ever put on film. So that was kind of a groundbreaking project. And then we you know started doing feature films. We did uh, a few, uh, a couple Star Trek films. We did Star Trek Seven. What was that one called? That was Generations. Right. And uh, we did like the stellar cartography and, you know, a bunch of sequences in that and a lot of the green screen and blue screen work. Then we did uh, Star Trek Nine, which was Insurrection. And right. that was the first CG enterprise and all that. So we did, we created CG models of all of everything. And uh, so cool. So that was kind of groundbreaking. And then we worked on a film called American Werewolf in Paris. We did CG werewolves, and we invented um, a way to render hair. And we were, so we were one of oh. the first to do that. I hired some really good programmers, and that was always sort. I always had that kind of side, you know, that I was interested in, that yeah. I understood, and that I could supervise. And and so we wrote a lot of great tools. And then, you know, I'll make a short story long. Um, in 2000. Three, uh, my wife passed away, and uh, she was my partner, and uh, we owned the business together, and we didn't have any investors or anything. Santa Barbara Studios, and um, okay, and I kind of went off the deep end, and I ju- I just closed it all down. I couldn't deal with it anymore. About a year after that, uh, a friend called me and and said, uh, you know, why don't you come over to Europe, and you know, we're gonna make a couple movies, and you know get off your butt and come to Venice, Italy and make a movie. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty good. Wow. So since yeah. then, I've been a, you know, independent, you know, visual effects supervisor or digital compositor, which works really well. You know, I can just work from home. That's one great thing about the Internet. I can work from home. That's uh, true. You know, uh, in these viral times, what would we do without the Internet? I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I've worked on a lot of films and a lot with uh, a friend of mine, Bruce Jones, who's at Warner Brothers. And he was my, uh, I actually hired him as a art director for Wayfront when we were a production company uh, at the very beginning. I hired him out of school. He became a producer. He was my producer at Santa Barbara Studios for a while, but then he went on to do a lot of different things. And now he's a visual effects supervisor and he's he's always working at Warner Brothers. Um, they use him a lot. Cool. And uh, he's so he's always a lot of the kindness of his heart. He's he always hires me <laughs> on these films oh, <laughs> and I can work wonderful. and I can work from home. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so the last film was uh, just finished. It's called Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman. Okay. Yeah, directed by oh, at least nice. first time director, and it's kind of a futuristic sci-fi romantic thriller. 
so worked cool. on A Star is Born, yeah. fixing Lady Gaga's makeup. Yes, oh, so cool. Yeah, worked on yeah. It, worked on Spawn, worked on yep. uh, Harley Quinn, a Suicide Squad. You know, so uh, still kicking around. I'm 65. Oh, wonderful. 65 now, but, you know, still still kicking. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, when I, uh, every time I watch Tron and watch the credits and read online about some of the people who created Tron, and you know, I, I start to hope that they're all still with us. And, you know, inevitably I discover sometimes that I will not have an opportunity to speak with someone, say, Peter yeah. Lloyd, for example. Right. So, it's so wonderful to hear, John, that you're working so much today still and, and making all these wonderful films. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm thankful for it. You know, the software now, which we all helped create, allows uh, people like me and, and other people and millions of people around the world to earn a living. In fact, um, the software that we developed is used all around the world. And, and, uh, and Americans have, you know, trained people all around the world. And so there's, you know, a plus side and a, and a minus side to that. You know, if we kept all the secrets to ourselves, we'd probably be making a lot more money. But it's not all about money. If you enjoy this podcast, please support my work on the IO Tower at patreon.com slash ddprogram. Until next time, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line.